Our text for this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 8. And we'll be focusing our attention upon verses 31 through 38 this Lord's Day. In building a house, the contractor must first know what is going to be the cost to complete it. He doesn't enter into some particular building project without knowing what it is going to cost to complete it. He doesn't want to have to start part way and not to be able to complete the project. Likewise, before Christ began building His church, the Son of God covenanted with His Father in the covenant of redemption and eternity and agreed upon the cost to build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the very first living stone was laid upon Christ, the rock, the righteousness of Christ was determined to be the church's only merit. And the sacrifice of Christ was determined to remove all of the church's demerit. This was the covenanted price to purchase the salvation of undeserving sinners who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The last few weeks we have been considering the means by which Christ builds His invisible, redeemed church. This Lord's Day we shall consider the cost of building that church. The four main or the three main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. First, the cost to Christ in Mark eight thirty one. Secondly, the foolishness of preaching the cross of Christ in Mark chapter eight verses two thirty two through thirty three. And thirdly, the cost to the Christian in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Let us consider then the very first main point from our text, the cost to Christ in building His church. Mark 8, 31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. In the last section in Mark chapter 8, we considered the end with what appears to be a very strange command. There in that last section, the last verse, in verse 30, it says, and he charged them that they should tell no man of him. The context is that Peter has just confessed Christ, the Lord Jesus, to be the Christ. And the Lord then at the end of that section says, don't tell anything about this. Don't say any of this to any man. The question naturally arises, why would Christ tell His disciples not to tell any man 
as to who he was, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. <clears throat> well, I would submit to you a couple possible things to consider in relationship to this. First of all, this was obviously a temporary command rather than a permanent command. For in Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter is declaring on the day of Pentecost to Israel these very truths. That God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then second of all, I would suggest that although Peter's testimony was true in what he testified concerning Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was nevertheless incomplete. It was an incomplete testimony as we shall see from our text this Lord's Day. There was more to add to that particular testimony that Peter and the other disciples needed to understand and know before going out and proclaiming this particular truth about Christ. Listen to Calvin's explanation for the Lord's command to be silent in Mark 8.30. Calvin says in his commentary on this passage, As the time of his death was now at hand, and as they were not yet fully prepared to testify their faith, but on the contrary, were so weak in faith that their confession of it would have exposed them to ridicule, the Lord enjoins them to remain silent till others shall have acknowledged Him to be the conqueror of death and till He shall have endued them with increased firmness. As we will see, uh, there was a very, very important part of that testimony and confession that needed to be supplied that Peter did not yet understand, nor did the other apostles. Christ would not send the apostles forth to testify of him until they could give a full and complete testimony to the truth, so as not to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. They had been indeed empowered with amazing abilities and gifts of grace. As they went forth, as you will recall, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. The pastoral epistles of Paul to Timothy and Titus continually emphasize the theme of ministers being those who are sound in doctrine, lest they do more damage to the church than good to the church. What reproach has been brought against Christ as hundreds of various denominations all claiming to be Christian have divided those professing the name of Christ from one another on the basis of unsound teaching from all unsound teachers who lead us, from a pure testimony of Christ's doctrine, worship, and church government, we are commanded by Paul to withdraw ourselves in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5. Knowing that his time is short, 
Christ begins to instruct his disciples concerning his death in this section. This is, dear ones, the most direct reference that Christ makes to his death up to this point. There had previously been allusions to his death, but apparently the disciples had not understood the significance of what he had said. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, there he had spoken of the sign of Jonah, who would be three days and three nights in the belly, or who was three days and three nights in the belly of of uh, the the fish, the whale. And it says that likewise the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. It's amazing as you consider that. I mean, we have 2020 hindsight, and we can look back and say, you know, why in the world didn't they understand what Christ was saying about the fact that he would be in the grave? for three days and three nights, that he would die. Well, I would, uh, again, simply say they did not understand the significance of that. It is amazing how slow the disciples were to learn all that was prophesied of Christ from the Old Testament. Jesus said exactly that very thing in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26, And in that context, it's after his resurrection. It's after his resurrection and he's walking along with two of his followers and they can't figure out what's going on that the Messiah has been crucified. And they've even heard reports that he has been raised from the dead. They can't can't figure it out very slow to learn what was taught and what was spoken of in the Old Testament. You see, they did not understand that the victorious Christ prophesied in Psalm 2.2 and the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 53 were fulfilled in the same person. We're not talking about two separate persons, but one who would be both priest and king. And as amazing as is the slowness of his disciples to grow in the knowledge of Christ, what is even more amazing is the patience of the Lord with his very slow disciples. As we have noted before, the Lord was not patient with the obstinate Pharisees but he was amazingly patient with the weak disciples. And this is the model that all who would teach others must follow, whether in the home. Parents must be very patient to teach their children the things of God. They must be willing to go over and over and over those things with their children until they become, as it were, second nature to them. Husbands must be very patient in in teaching their wives. They must be careful to set an example before them 
and before their children that that example or by example they do not lead their family away from the Lord. Ministers and elders must be very careful to and very patient to teach the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. The weakness of Christians, dear ones, is a very evident fact, self-evident fact to all of us. It ought to be self-evident in our own lives. As we look and see how slowly at times we learn the lessons which the Lord has given to us to learn. As we see that we hear a particular truth preached or taught and we do not grasp the significance of that truth. We do not meditate upon that truth subsequently to glean from it all that we possibly can. But we so quickly forget what we are taught. You see, dear ones, this is the way it is. This is the way those who follow Christ are. We are all weak, like the disciples here, in learning and in growing. That's not to justify or to condone that. It's simply to say, that's the way we are. That's a part of our corruption, part of our human nature that has been corrupted by sin, that we are so slow to remember but so quick to forget. The Lord here teaches His disciples in degrees. He does not give them more than they can bear at any one time. In fact, even in the upper room discourse, the Lord is saying that I can't give you more right now because you will not be able to bear it. And we must have that kind of awareness again with those whom we lead. If we truly love them, we're going to be sensitive to how much they can handle at one particular setting. And we'll give them something that they will be able to used to implement that truth, to practice that truth, to go over that truth until they finally do learn it. You know, the Lord could have, as you stop to think about the power of God, the Lord certainly could have given them a heart to receive all of the truth at one time. He could have given them the ability to simply open up their heart, their mind, and He could have just given them everything at once and given them the ability to practice it. And the question, again, naturally comes to our mind, why didn't He do so? And why doesn't He do so with us? Why is it so hard in the Christian life at times in this regard? Well, I would submit to you that the Lord desired to demonstrate through His disciples His love for poor, weak vessels of mercy like you and me. 
Through His disciples, He wanted us to learn and to see the, the amazing picture, the graphic picture of His love, His patience, His goodness, His grace to His people. See, we don't have the opportunity to see that to this extent if automatically we know all that we're supposed to know. And automatically we practice all that we do know. God could make it, have made us that way, no doubt about it. But this demonstrates even more gloriously His great love for weak, frail sinners like you and me. And His faithfulness to this, His covenant of grace to not give up, to not lose even one of us who belong to Him. <clears throat> At this point in Christ's ministry, as we said, He began clearly to teach the disciples that He was to suffer before He entered into His glory. The cost of purchasing His bride, the church, unto Himself was to be threefold according to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He was to suffer many things. Second, He was to be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests and scribes. And thirdly, He was to be killed, crucified. That's the suffering side of what Christ was to experience and then the glory side when He entered into His estate of exaltation, having passed out of the estate of, of humiliation he now enters into the state of exaltation by way of His resurrection, which will then lead to His, his ascension into heaven. His sessions being seated at the right hand of God and His coming in glory. <clears throat> On all accounts, <clears throat> there was nothing in the bride that deserved such a costly dowry that Christ would suffer, be rejected, and crucified for His bride. For she was an undeserving harlot, a thankless recipient of God's daily bread bestowed upon her, and a spiteful enemy to Christ's holiness. And yet the sinless Christ suffered as no one has ever suffered. The sinless Christ was rejected with such hatred as no one has ever been rejected. And the sinless Christ was crucified with such shame as no one was ever killed. Why such an infinitely valuable cost? to be paid for such an undeserving bride. It was the cost, dear ones, of covenanted love. Is it any wonder 
that Christ will then be patient, constant, steadfast, and ever faithful to us, His people, when He's paid such a price. He patiently continues every day to lead us out of our impurities and weaknesses and into His purity and into His strength until on that final day we are made a bride without any impure blemish to the glory of Christ. The Lord, dear ones, not only taught the disciples concerning His suffering, rejection, and crucifixion, but He also taught them concerning His resurrection. For as the Apostle Paul declares, our hope is in vain without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could the bride possibly be declared righteous? How could the bride possibly be assured of her salvation and her righteousness if death indeed held and bound the Lord Jesus Christ? It would indicate that there was no justification. For Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, it was for our justification that He was raised from the dead. It was because of our justification that He was raised from the dead. If there was no justification, He would have remained in the grave. And so the empty tomb says, we are declared righteous. Through Christ. The promise has been fulfilled. Christ has secured the blessings, the benefits for His church because there's an empty tomb. Dear ones, our hope is in vain and we are yet dead in our sins if Christ is in that tomb. But praise be to God, that tomb is empty. And we, as a result, are more than conquerors to Christ who loved us. Well, that summarizes the cost of Christ. We move then to the second main point from our text, the foolishness of preaching the cross of Christ. In Mark chapter 8, verse 32 and verse 33, we read these words. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Before considering Peter's response that we find here in Mark 8, verse 32, let us remember the general view that prevailed amongst the people of Israel at that time as to the Messiah. 
as to the nature of the kingdom that the popular uh, as to the popular view they believed for the most part and i believe we see evidences of this even amongst the 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 disciples themselves they believed that the messiah would be a political savior who would deliver them from all of their political enemies, especially Rome, as he would reign from David's throne there in Jerusalem. In fact, we noted earlier in a sermon that after the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 15, he had to escape quickly because they sought to coerce and force him to sit upon the throne of David as king. No doubt to dispel their enemies. No doubt to fulfill those particular promises that they viewed as being of a purely political nature from the Old Testament. This in part would indeed explain Peter's re reaction to what Christ has just predicted, that He is going to suffer, He's going to be rejected, and He's going to be killed. Peter earnestly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, as he says in Mark 8.29, the Son of the living God, as is said in in Matthew 16.16. But a dead Messiah did not fit into Peter's view at all. Peter's reaction to Christ's prediction of his death was to take Christ aside and to more privately rebuke him. Or, that same word is used, as used there for rebuke, is used to mean censure. To censure Christ for saying such things. Here again we see the impetuous, rash, impulsive nature of Peter. As I said earlier, this reaction was in part due to Peter's erroneous conception of the nature of Christ's kingdom. But also it was due in part to Peter's sincere love for the Lord. Peter's Rebuke was not, I would submit to you, motivated from malice or hatred for Christ, but from love and zeal for Christ. And yet, a love and a zeal without knowledge. And dear ones, a love and a zeal without knowledge is always a very dangerous type of love and zeal as Christ demonstrates here in this passage. How soon Peter had forgotten the significance of his confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is again because Peter has forgotten who Jesus really is that he presumes to censure or to rebuke the Lord. You see, this particular sin of having forgotten who Christ really is has come up many times 
in the Gospel accounts. We have noted it. For example, in Mark 6, verse 52, where after the feeding of the 5,000 and upon the Sea of Galilee, when the storm came up, their fear, the text says, was attributed to the fact that they had forgotten what had just happened. That Christ had the power to feed 5,000. We also noted that at the feeding of the 4,000, a few months later, in Mark 8, verse 4, that they had again forgotten the miracle of having fed the 5,000. And they're asking the question, who can feed this many people in the wilderness? And Christ had already done so a few months earlier. They had forgotten who Christ was. And just right after that miracle, the same evening, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee again, and they have forgotten the low, uh, to bring with them sufficient provision. And there, at that particular time as well, the Lord rebukes them and says, Why have you yet hardened your hearts? Have you forgotten who I am and what I have done? And here again, I would suggest that for Peter to rebuke the Christ, the Son of the living God, he has again forgotten who he is speaking to. Peter has the doctrine down that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but the application of his doctrine is very weak. Growth in the Christian life, dear ones, is not only in the knowledge of Christ, but in the grace of Christ. Not only in truth, but in application of the truth to our lives. For where there is no desire, dear ones, to apply the knowledge of Christ to our lives, but rather simply to impress others with our knowledge or to beat others over their head with our knowledge or to control others with our knowledge, there is no real evidence of a genuine work of grace. Such a thought ought to drive us, dear ones, to our knees to plead with the Lord to give us, therefore, holy affections to apply whatever we learn to our lives. Peter's sincere faith in Christ at this point did not prevent him from making a very serious error. Peter was indeed a sincere believer, but a sincerely wrong believer at this point in what he says. Sincerity, therefore, dear ones, is no excuse for unsound doctrine, worship, or church government. We cannot simply fall back upon this type of a statement, well, at least I'm sincere, or at least he or she is sincere. 
after we hear the rebuke of the Lord, we certainly can't fall back on such a statement. For unsound doctrine, worship, or government, dear ones, is contrary to Christ. Regardless if the person is a believer or an unbeliever, it is contrary to Christ. Dear ones, although there are more fundamental truths to our salvation than others, we must always remember that the same authority of Christ upholds and maintains all truth. For all truth is God's truth. It is not optional, therefore, for us to believe or not to believe anything which God reveals in His Word. For Jesus Christ is not only our priest, but He is our prophet and our king. And He rules His church by His Word and His Spirit. After the rebuke of Peter, the Lord turns around. That is, after Peter rebukes him, the Lord, the Lord turns around and looks at the disciples. And then in the hearing of the disciples, as well as to Peter, He addresses this next statement to Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Within a very short period of time, Peter went from the heights of having been the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, to the depths of being called Satan by Christ, the Son of the living God. Amazing. Why such a stern and severe rebuke to such a sincere and loving disciple? One who is well-intentioned. Well, let me suggest three reasons why such a stern and severe rebuke to Peter. First of all, Peter was rebuking or censuring God Himself. He had forgotten Himself. He had forgotten the Holy One that He was rebuking. What audacity for any creature, whether believer or unbeliever, to rebuke the one true living God. You remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, What or why hast thou made me thus? Who do you think you are to reply against God, to censure God, to rebuke God? And dear ones, we do the same thing. I would submit to you, we do the same thing when we rebuke God for His providential dealings with us by accusing Him of being unfair or unloving 
in our lives that in effect we censure and rebuke God as well. When we don't like the way things have gone in our life, when afflictions come our way, and we begin in our hearts to accuse the Lord God, we fall into the same trap here as did Peter. And in so doing, I submit to you that we, at that point in time, play the role of Satan, the adversary. We accuse God. Another reason I would suggest that Peter here receives such a stern rebuke from the Lord is that Peter was undermining, albeit unintentionally, but he was undermining the covenant of grace. Christ's sufferings were necessary to His glory and the glory of His people. You'll remember that Satan himself had sought to lead Christ away from fulfilling the covenant of grace by promising Him the kingdoms of the world by mere raw power. And that Christ had uttered the exact, precise same words to Satan, Get thee behind me, Satan. In Luke 4.8 So likewise, Peter here was ignorantly promoting a salvation by works. And therefore, he received the same rebuke from the Lord. Peter was in effect declaring that salvation may come by raw political force. That the kingdom may come without the cross. Dear ones, God has ordained that salvation and true reformation come not through the ballot box. Not through the power military force, nor through the wisdom of man. But salvation and reformation come by the foolishness of preaching. Preaching a victory of grace through a crucified Savior and risen Lord. You remember the words of Zechariah? Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Yes, we may be in a minority and people may say, how can you possibly affect political change by remaining outside of the system itself? by dissenting from the system and refusing to use the ballot box to affect change. Well, dear ones, the changes that we are looking for do not come by a majority, mere majority vote. They come through a changed heart. They come through true reformation. And that comes through the Word and by the Word and the Spirit. It comes through preaching faithfully, that Jesus Christ is the only way to bring about true and lasting reformation in a heart, in a family, in a church, and in a nation, and in the world. 
the United Nations will not accomplish reformation or peace. It is through the preaching of the gospel. That's what the Lord Jesus, I believe as well, was rebuking about what Peter said. And third reason I would submit to you for this stern rebuke from the Lord to Peter uh, is this, that Peter was upholding the doctrine of man at the expense of the doctrine of Christ. Dear ones, whenever we oppose the truth of Christ, we need to hear these words loud and clear. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Every time we oppose that which Christ has taught in his word, we savor the things of men. We think the thoughts of men rather than the thoughts of God. And to think the thoughts of men rather than thoughts of God is to be an adversary to Christ at that point. It is to be Satan-like at that point. You know, this should really have the effect of driving us to consider the importance of maintaining and promoting with all due seriousness every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To not wax unfaithful or lax in our standing for the truth, lest we become Satan-like, adversarial-like to the cause of Jesus Christ. To think the thoughts of men, and if we don't take anything else away from the sermon, to think the thoughts of men is to be like Satan, rather than thinking the thoughts of God. The Lord rebuked Peter by saying, Your misguided love, sincerity, and zeal for me are no substitute for the truth. For love, zeal, sincerity apart from the truth of Christ are always dangerous to the souls of men. We can never minimize how dangerous it is to depart in the smallest degree from the truth of Christ. And the moment we minimize departing even the smallest degree from the truth of Christ, who knows what that might lead to in a person's life and how it might affect other people and churches and nations. Just a little bit in this particular generation, a little bit in the next generation. Standing, dear ones, for the truth is so vitally important to the testimony of Christ. And being like Christ and not like Satan. 
Now that is not to say that it is a better option to know the truth and yet not be zealous for the cause of Christ, not be sincere in faith, and not love and enjoy Christ. The Lord's words simply imply the foundational nature of truth to all affections and actions in the Christian life. Truth is foundational to everything we think and speak and do. Peter was thinking man's thoughts rather than thinking God's thoughts. And for that reason, the Lord told him, Get thee behind me, Satan. The third and last point from our text is the cost to the Christian. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." The Lord now invites the larger crowd around him to hear these words along with his own disciples. Before we consider the words of the Lord here, I want to make it perfectly clear that this is not a cost on the part of man in order to pay for his justification, adoption, sanctification, or glorification. This is not a salvation by merit or works. All the blessings of salvation are once and for all secured by Christ for His redeemed church. There is nevertheless, dear ones, a cost to be those who follow Christ. Living the Christian life, dear ones, is not the easiest thing by way of sacrifice. It is the hardest thing. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't call us to something easy here. He calls us to something impossible in our own strength. He calls us to follow Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus Christ. The Lord says that those who would follow Him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Him. If I could go back to what Jesus said would happen to Him by way of prediction, He said that He was to suffer many things, Number one. Number two, he was to be rejected. 
And number three, he was to be killed. How do we willingly give up this life that we may have the life to come? We must be willing as our Lord was. We must be willing to suffer many things for the sake of Christ and His Gospel. We can never say, Lord, this is too hard. There isn't enough grace for me to be able to make it in the Christian life. I can't do it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, dear ones. That's why he suffered. To set an example and to show that he would provide what we need. The second thing was, and that which we must be willing to do, we must be willing to be rejected. Just as he was willing to be rejected by all of the leaders at that time, but he was rejected by his people. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected by the greater part of his people of Israel. We must be willing to be rejected by our kindred. We must be willing to be rejected by our family. We must be willing to be rejected by our friends and associates for the cause of Jesus Christ, the cause of His gospel, His truth. And we must be willing to be killed like Christ if we would follow him. We must be willing to suffer the greatest shame if we would follow Christ. Be willing to lay down our lives for the truth of Christ. To be a martyr for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know, martyrdom doesn't just... Those who have been very faithful at times when the church underwent much persecution, martyrdom didn't simply... At least this would be my explanation. It wasn't merely a grace that that was automatically... Um, given out of heaven at that precise moment without there having been preparation to some degree for that particular time. If we never think, dear ones, about suffering for Christ, being rejected for Christ, and being killed for Christ, it's a little hard to imagine that all of a sudden, out of the blue, the grace is simply going to come at that precise moment. Even at this particular point in your life and in mine, we ought to be praying seriously and faithfully, Lord, grant me the grace, whatever lies ahead. If it means suffering for you, if it means being rejected for you, if it means dying for you, give me the grace that I will need at that time 
I pray for the grace at that time that Thou wilt supply it. But as we do, I'm convinced that what the Lord will do in the present time is to give us grace for whatever we have to go through. If we're praying seriously for grace to die for the Lord, will the Lord not give us grace to live for Him now? To be faithful? Those who would enjoy the glories of heaven will evidence it, dear ones, by their willingness to lose whatever is important to them in this life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. God doesn't call us each one to give up when we become a Christian everything we have and own. He calls us to be willing to sacrifice it, though. He calls us to be if we're faced with that circumstance or situation, to be willing to lay it aside for Christ and His Gospel. After all, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. That for which we are most willing to suffer is that which is most dear to us. What are we willing to give up to follow Christ. This is the nature of this admonition that comes from the Lord at this particular point. Jesus had been talking about the cost to Himself. Peter had said, No, Lord, you can't go to the cross. You can't die. And the Lord turns it around and says, Not only will I die, but those who follow Me must be willing to suffer, to be rejected, and to die like Me. In verses 36 and 37, the questions asked by Christ, I believe, say it all. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Can you think of more serious and important questions than those? Children, Can you think of anything more important than those questions? What will it profit you to gain everything in the whole world but then to die and to go to hell? What will you be able to take with you to hell? Nothing. But to suffer eternal punishment. What can you give in exchange, dear ones, for your soul? When you, the Lord is asking you to put out the scales, and as you weigh the importance of eternity, if there is anything in this life that tips the scale in that direction, then you've got everything wrong. Everything should be tipped this way in light of eternity. These eternal matters are so much more important than anything else in all of life. You know, when the Christian does this, there is no way that that he can ever go wrong. 
when he's making decisions based upon eternal values and consequences. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That I may win Christ. There will never be any regrets that you will have can you imagine the martyrs, the two Margarets, who were buried in the sand up to a point and the tide rolled over them? Can you imagine those faithful women in heaven having regrets that they stood for the testimony of Christ? Can you imagine the faithful Bishop Latimer, Cranmer, and Hooker, or Hooper? who were burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary for their testimony to Christ, regretting anything by way of that faithful testimony, their suffering. Can you imagine the faithful Cargill or Rennick who were hanged Can you imagine those who were beheaded in any way regretting having stood faithful? Dear ones, we need to look and to consider in light of these heavenly consequences and principles all that we do in our life. And then finally, one last very brief point. Everything must be weighed in the light of the final judgment according to Mark 8.38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of Christ is different than to fear man. Peter feared man and fell. But to be ashamed of Christ at this particular point, what Jesus is saying here, to be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ is to consider Jesus Christ unworthy. Unworthy of our faith, unworthy of our trust, unworthy, his testimony unworthy to be upheld. Those who are ashamed of Christ the Lord himself will be ashamed of in that final day of judgment. The Lord grant us the grace to count the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord grant us the grace that we might stand in a, a sinful and adulterous generation that we might be faithful to Him. Please stand with me in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we do bow before Thee this day and acknowledge that Thy Word has pricked our hearts. For Lord, we we see our natural tendency to cower before men, to not be willing to suffer, to be rejected, or to die for Thee. We pray, Heavenly Father, that Thou would fill us with courage, that Thou would fill us, Lord, with the Spirit of Christ. We ask, our Father, that Thou would would fill us with Thy, Thy promises as well as we have seen the patience of the Lord, as we have seen how the Lord worked with His disciples in instructing and teaching them, and yet... O Lord, we have seen the firm and severe rebuke of the Lord to Peter. Let us consider, O Father, that all of the chastening that we receive from Thee is for our good, that those whom Thou dost love, Thou dost chasten and rebuke. We pray, Father, that Thou would use even the rebukes, even the discipline that we that we receive in our Christian life to draw us unto Christ and not to, to cause us to flee from Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.